The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, um, one hour at a time, and we're going to be spending an hour uh, talking about um, the effects that mental illness have on families. We have a great guest with us today. Her name is Sharon Hicks, and she has written a book about um, living with her mother who had um, experienced schizophrenia and uh, bipolar disorder, and um, I guess for all of Sharon's life, um, her mother had been ill. And uh, Sharon has written a book um, called How You Grab a Naked Lady. And um, the book is a result of a compilation of interviews with her mom, her own memories, and collection of police reports and other um, public records that that Sharon researched. So, Sharon, thank you for uh, agreeing to spend this hour with us. Well, thank you very much. I'm... Looking forward to talking to you. What made you decide to write a book about your experience with your mom and your own experience? I I felt this need inside of me for over 50 years. I knew I was going to write a book because her stories were, people would say, oh, they're so unbelievable. Sharon, you have to write about it. You know, so this has always been my mantra. And I, I being the daughter always felt a little invisible to because she was always the colorful character. She was always the one having fun. She was always the one that was just out there. And I just I just kept notes and I was going to write her story. And she was very excited about me writing it. She she sat with me and I interviewed her for hours. She was very excited. I was going to write her story. And you still have your, your tapes? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Well, that's... But Mary yeah, was very interesting when I was, I was always going to be about her when I started to write her story. I was at a workshop and I was telling the time when I was 10 years old and I was watching the men strap her down in a gurney and they were going to take her off to the mental hospital. My mother had planned an anniversary party and she came out in different C2 negligees throughout the party in a pink one and a white one and a black one. And I was so embarrassed. I'm 10 years old, and my dad had invited a doctor to the meeting, unbeknownst to my mother. And I was telling this story about my mother parading around almost in the nude in front of all her guests, and someone said, well, Sharon, how did you feel at 10 years old watching your mom do do this? How did you feel watching her parade around? And And how did you feel when the men came and grabbed her and strapped her down to a gurney and, and she was yelling and screaming and, and, and you couldn't help her and 
what, where were you sitting? What were you doing? What were you wearing? And I just started to cry. And I said, no one ever asked me how I felt before. And he said, well, Sharon, that's your story. So it didn't turn out to be her story. It turned out to be my memoir of a daughter growing up with a mother that loved to be manic and wouldn't take her medication. Well, I, I applaud you for um, bearing your soul because in many ways that's what you did in this, in this book. And, you know, what struck me um, early on was how young your mother was when she, when she married your dad. Yeah. And, um, and we're talking about the late, the mid-30s, mid to late 30s, right, when the right. world was a much different place. Right. And how um, constricted women were then, especially mm-hmm. young women, um, they didn't have a lot of opportunities to do much other than to get married and right. fulfill that expectation. And it was her way to get out of the situation she was in. She was only 15 when she met my dad. And they married the next year when she was 16. My dad was 18. And in those days, well, it was during the Depression, too. In those days, uh, my, my dad had a car, he had a job, and my mother thought, wow, this is wonderful. You know, it was a, a security for her. So she, and, and he was a go-getter. She, she liked his drive. And she always knew he'd take care of her, and he did. He took care of her her entire life. Right. Um, when, you, when you think about the little girl that, um, you know, yearned for a normal family, and, I mean, there, there are things in, that you talk about in terms of your being locked out of the house, your brother being tied to a clothesline. Yeah. Um, how do you survive that? The... The hardest part for me was being locked in closets. I still, to this day, really have bad claustrophobia. Um, my brother does, too. We both have claustrophobia. I don't know if it's from that or not. But um, I don't know. You, I don't know how to tell you how I survived it. You, you just do. You know, as a little girl, what else do you know except what's going on in your own house? You know, I don't know. People have asked me that, how did I survive? I didn't understand till 10 years old at this anniversary party. What really helped me, Mary, was I'm 10 years old. This doctor that was at the anniversary party took me next door, and he sat down with me, and he said, Sharon, your mother is sick. And when he said that, I just this weight lifted off me, and I thought, oh, there's an answer. She's sick. And he said, you know, it could be like any other disease. She just happens to have a sickness in her, inside her head. He said, she's just sick. And I thought, as a 10-year-old, oh, good, if she's sick, she can get better. And I felt all this hope, and I was just real excited that I found out at 10 she was sick. That really helped me. And for you, that kind of put everything into context. Yes. Yes, and I carried that through me through all my whole life. You know, okay, she's sick. That's, some people... Their parents have cancer or heart disease or they drink too much or whatever else is going on. My mother's sick. And interesting thing is I always felt special because I didn't know anybody else who had a mother who was sick in the head. I, th- I thought it was very special. I just turned it around. It seemed like you had a really good relationship with your dad. Yes. Yeah. He said and that he, the hardest question I ever asked him when I was 10 years Hello? He said the hardest question I ever asked him when I was 10 years old was, 
will I ever grow up to be like my mother? That really devastated him. Mary? Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to cough and not go oh. all over the air. Um, <laughs> you know, we're cold. I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was very touched by the relationship that your dad had with your mother, and he seemed to be very patient and tolerant of a lot of um, her illness and symptoms. Yes, he was. He, he, um, he was a saint, you know. He he put up with a lot. He he stayed married for twenty eight years to her. He was, um, and you know, in those days, there were no civil rights for the mentally ill. So, interesting thing when before I wrote the book, I didn't like my mother very much. Down deep, I was always upset. She never took her meds. She never took her medication. She never tried to get, uh, like, on a normal keel, we called it, some kind of normality in her life. You know, we all have ups and downs, but hers were extreme, and I always thought, she's doing this on purpose. All she has to do is take a medication. You know, that's what I'm thinking. But for my mother, the medication was terrible. You know, it made her itch, it made her pace, her mouth was dry. Uh, she she didn't like it at all. She, well, of course, when, when you're manic, you don't want to take medication. You know, it's too much fun for her. She was having right. a lot of fun. But um, I always was kind of upset with her. But before I wrote the book, I was just writing it, just write it all out. And then after I was writing it, I thought, my goodness, she had no civil rights in the 1940s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And not till 1980 was there a committee formed called Truth in Psychiatry that a patient had to consent to a shock treatment. Before that time, all my dad had to do was call the phone. If my mother was a little bit off call, call the doctor on the phone, and boom, she was sent, she was taken away. I mean, there's no questions. And she said, right. you know, Sharon, I got, I got shocked when I felt good. I got shocked when I felt bad. I got shocked all the time, you know. And she said, there's just no winning. I'm just getting shocked all the time, you know. So she had no civil rights. Till 1980s. And it also sounded like she had insulin therapy as well as um, immersions in cold baths as well. Yeah. Hydrotherapy. Yes, she did. She said it it felt, when the shock treatment felt like she was getting hit by a train head on, just laying on a track. Because in those days, they didn't give you muscle relaxants either. Right. Yeah, I know. I went to nursing school in the early 70s, and um, part of our training experience was at a, at a state hospital. And, um, <clears throat> you know, watching the electric shock therapy at that time and, and uh, you know, the, the water therapy, it was to me just so barbaric. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't reconcile myself to that. And it seemed like the women's unit had a lot more of that than the men's unit. I was grateful I was on a men's ward. But, you know, it's just, you're absolutely right. No one had rights. And, yeah. um, and especially women didn't have rights because, uh, you know, there, there were women who ended up in the state hospital just because their husband didn't want them around anymore. And they absolutely. wanted to find a good way to divorce them, you know. Yes. It, it yeah. was very barbaric. You're right. Right, right. So, yes, yeah, right. so after I wrote the memoir, I got to understand what she went through, and, I'm, and I got a deeper love for her than I ever had before. It was a very interesting process for me. It sounds like it was a very healthy process for you. Yes, it is. And people ask me, they say, well, Sharon, I want to write a book. And I, and I tell people, 
Just write down incidences. Just write down something that might have happened that day. Just don't think of it as a book. Just just write. And, and it'll come together at one time or another. And you realize, oh, my gosh, I have a book. But if you think about, I'm going to write a book and sit down and do it, it, comes, it becomes too overwhelming. So that's what I did. I just wrote incidences all the time. And it just came together for me. Well, and, and it's a nice... Um I think there are probably a lot of people who have experienced similar kinds of um, behaviors from parents who were mentally ill and mm-hmm. not treated or undertreated. I think that, um, that that's a part of people's experiences they don't necessarily want to share. I, many times in the book, um, people would talk about a naked lady running down the street or being somewhere, and yeah. you would just say, well, that's my mother. Yeah, that's my um, mother. But there are a lot of people who wouldn't do that. Yeah, she ran the Honolulu Marathon in the nude, and at the, at the, the, how I got the title was uh, she was at a shopping mall, and she wanted a particular necklace made with letters across her chest, and they were obscene letters, and they, the store wouldn't allow her, allow, they wouldn't make the necklace for her, and she got so mad. She goes up the escalator over the fine jewelry department and throws off her clothes, and she's totally naked, and she goes down the escalator naked over the fine jewelry department, and there's a guard at the bottom, and then there's a guard at top. And I'm watching her. She's 39 years old, and I'm 16, and I'm, and I'm the homecoming queen for the big game at the Honolulu Stadium coming Saturday. And I'm watching my mother naked go up and down the escalator, teasing the guards. Just going, she was going down, and she's going up, and she's going down, and she's backpedaling. And finally, one guard yet, how do you grab a naked lady? And we'll be right back to talk more about this after this commercial. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Sharon Hicks. And we're talking about Sharon's memoir in which she writes about um, all, all of the feelings that she had growing up with a mother who had bipolar disorder as well as schizophrenia and, um, and how this memoir has been a way to, in some ways, I think, heal you, Sharon, and, and at least to reconcile your experience um, with with your mom and before we went to break you were explaining how you came up with the title which is how do you grab a naked lady right I was at a storytelling workshop and I was telling a story about my mother riding the escalator and how horrified I was and finally one guard yells to the other well, how do you grab a naked lady and as I said that an author and actor at the workshop said well Sharon that's your title and I never really knew what my title was going to be so that's your title <laughs> And, you know, the title really works throughout the whole book because it's how do you get a hold of this? How do you grab, get, get a handle on mental illness? Just recently, a third-year student at University of California at Irvine wrote a review, and I just found it on the web. She wrote it in the, the uh, California Journal for Women Writers. And at the end, she said, this is not about how you're grabbing a naked lady. This is about the nakedness of all of us. And how life can really be, and I, I just, I just thought that was wonderful. I've had excellent reviews by psychiatrists and psychologists, and I usually find them when I go on the internet. And uh, I learned from their reviews what I've written because I didn't preach. I didn't. I'm not an expert. I'm only an expert in being my mother's daughter. So all I did was tell her story, and I'm still learning from that. My people. The experts are reading my book and telling me more. I've had a couple of movie offers that I rejected, and I have one producer, a third one, that called me from Hollywood. So I really want to write this. I really want to write this, Sharon. He says he talked to me for over an hour, and then he says, "You know, you're really a brave person because I had a similar mother. She only read the first seven pages. I have a similar mother." But I took all my memories of growing up with her and I put it in a trunk and I threw it in the middle of the ocean. I just got rid of it. I don't want anything to do it. I just, I just can't face it. And he said because of my first seven pages, he went back east to talk to his dad and asked him questions about his mother that he never asked before. You know, why did you marry her? When did you first notice she was sick? Different questions that he never could ask before. But then he called me later on. He said, Sharon, I don't know if I can handle this. I, I, I don't know if I can do this. You know? And so then he called another producer, and, and, and now they're still talking. I don't know if they'll ever get it together because he said it was just so close to him. And that was very interesting to me that, that we do when we're growing up, how we handle these incidences that happen in our life. And to me, I kind of cataloged them in my head and kept thinking, she's sick. She's sick. And I just wrote them down, wrote them down. And she became somewhat, somewhat of a celebrity in Hawaii. I'm, I'm talking to you from Hawaii, and I'm living a mile from where I was raised. 
right here in beautiful Hawaii, and the palm trees are born. And, you know, I look out, and I, I, I try to level myself by looking at the ocean, and I know this chaos is going on in the house. But I was always able to separate that she was sick. Does that and make your mom would be gone for periods of time as well. I mean, she'd be hospitalized. Right, right. What, and what was that like when she was away? I loved it. I, I, I'm, only, I'm only 10 or so, but I loved it. I, she went to Connie Lay for, we have a mental hospital here called Connie Lay Mental Hospital. She went to Connie Lay for three months when I was 10. I did the washing. In those days, it was the old ringer type washing where you had to put it through a ringer and then dip it in different tubs and ring it back and hang it on a clothesline. And I scrubbed the floors and I, I made dinner for my dad and brother. I mean, I just, I just rose to the occasion and loved it because it was so peaceful. And then when she came home, she was like a zombie. She didn't know, you know, I had to help her. I had to tell her what side of the street to drive on. How, where the grocery store was, um, I had to kind of guide her around, and I didn't like that. I thought this this is weird, you know, because I knew she's like a zombie before she went away, all high and, and we called it high in those days, manic, mm-hmm. and came back like a zombie. I didn't I didn't know what to do with her. Must have been scary. Yes, and another thing I wanted to say that was very interesting to me was when I was growing up. In my mind, I thought, I'm never going to be like her. Never. You know, a lot of children say that about their parents. I'm never going to be like her. That was my mantra all my life. I was always perfect. Everything in my life, I was perfect. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do And the interesting thing is, when I was writing the memoir, I find her best qualities are my best qualities. Her love of philosophy, her love for music, her love for the inquiring mind, her... Her, her, um, just her, her outgoingness and, and being with people and making people feel good. When she'd talk to people, she would always make people feel good, you know, say something positive about them. And I got a lot of that from her, and I never knew it until I wrote the memoir. Because we tend to just remember the painful things. <clears throat> and I think, you know, when you were growing up, there was no support for children. There was no, no. thought, I don't think. No, not at all. You're right. having an effect. You're it right. had an effect on your brother as well. Yes. My brother, um, he was four years older. Oh, he still is four years older. And he always thought she was having a lot of fun. And he wasn't around very much. So when that episode when I'm 10, he's 14, he kind of just takes off. You know, he's just kind of absent at the house. I remember him being around much. Then he took off to California for college from Hawaii. So I I don't remember him being around very much. But I taped him also when I was taping my mother 30 years ago, and I had some great stories from him when we were young and how he looked at things. When we lived in California before we moved here, um, he was, I was about four and he was about, I was about six and he was about 10. Mother put him downstairs in the garage to live in a separate room and I always thought that was really cruel because he had to go outside the house we had to go down these stairs that were really kind of scary where the boogeyman lives and we had to go through this garage and go out into this room where he didn't have a toilet or anything he had to go outside the (laughs) window or or he'd go in little jars and he'd lay the jars all around stunk like heck you know in his in his little bedroom 
and then he had mice, and he'd sit up there in his, in his bed, uh, bunk bed with a BB gun shooting the mice. And I thought, this is awful. And my brother turned it around. He said, no, that made me stronger. He said, Sharon, I didn't realize until I read your memoir how that made me to be the strong man I am today. Isn't that interesting? It is. Children it, is. Take, it speaks take, to yeah, resilience. Yeah. Amazing. <clears throat> yeah. What children do so, to survive certain situations, yeah. what they do, that's mm-hmm. what they say in their heads to make right. it okay. Right. You know, you had talked um, in the last segment about how people with mental illness really didn't have any rights um, up until in Hawaii until 1980, and mm-hmm. and yet then you also talk about later on there was your mother had civil rights, so you couldn't force her to take meds or you couldn't, right. you know, encourage her to, to get treatment. So it seemed like you experienced both ends of the pendulum as far as that went. Exactly. And I had one national review, book review, say that my book shows the history of mental illness in, in the um, 20th century, how it went from no civil rights to the year 2000 when I couldn't get her help at all. It, it right. just blew my mind how I could take each decade and show the movement. In 1950s, my mother was uh, a candidate for lobotomy. Um, the doctors wanted to give her a lobotomy. And then my dad asked, well, what's the after effect of that? And I said, well, she probably will probably be a vegetable. You know, she, she won't have those extreme highs and lows. We'll just level her off. And my dad said no. And I, I relate this to the, the book, um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, by uh, Kesey, who it later became a movie with Jack Nicholson. This was in the 1970s. And actually, the character in the book wanted to, didn't want to go to jail. He wanted to go to a mental hospital. He thought that'd be more fun, so he pretended to be crazy so he could go to a mental hospital. And then all he did was, was make trouble in the mental hospital. He'd play with the patients against this nurse ratchet, you know, and they'd play back and forth. And she got so mad at him, she kept giving him shock treatments. And at the end, she gave him a lobotomy, and it killed him. And that story brought such awareness to mental illnesses about shock treatments, how we're giving them. And lobotomies, what, what are they good for, you know? So these stories that people tell... And what's happening is really helping the community because it's not just an individual disease or a family disease. It's a community disease. And we have to, you know, understand it and kind of erase the stigmas that are attached to it. And I think we also have to find some balance that people certainly should have their civil liberties. But also, when people need treatment, they they should be able to be given treatment. You know, I've been in meetings and, you know, we talk about if you keel over in a meeting and your heart stops, you know, people rush, they call 911. People you don't come, you don't know, come and maybe start an IV. They do all of these things that you're not given consent for because it's a it's a medical emergency. Mm-hmm. And nobody thinks twice about it. But if it's a psychiatric emergency, people are kind of helpless to intervene with the same level of expertise that you can in a medical emergency. Well that's interesting. 
That that really is interesting. You're right. And we're just getting a handle on it. And you know, it's kind of a, a new diagnosis, don't you think? I mean, it wasn't too long ago, a couple hundred years ago, and people were put up in the attic, or they were locked up in right. the cellar, or just yeah. put away. Oh, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that long ago that people with diabetes were chained in mental hospitals, too, because people didn't understand um, folks who had diabetes, Mm -hmm. and they were afraid of it, you know. So, yeah, it is relatively new, and I think that, um, you know... You don't want you don't want it to be in either extreme. You don't want people to be so ill that they can't get the help they need, or mm-hmm. that somebody has to. I mean, there's certainly been a lot in the newspapers about people who have not had access to mental health treatment and then go out in the community and shoot somebody or do whatever. Awful. And we know that there are good treatments for for a lot of these disorders. That mm-hmm. if people um, have the encouragement. Um, to be able to get the treatment and then be able to be monitored that had great results. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't want it to be on either extreme. There's got to be something in the middle. Yes, you're right. I know it's, uh, it's hard to, to grasp. And we'll be right back after this commercial um, with more with Sharon Hicks and her book, How Do You Grab a Naked Lady? listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
I hope everyone's enjoying um, our show today. Uh, Sharon's uh, memoir, How to Grab a Naked Lady, certainly speaks to our ability to um, to get through very troubling times and yet come out of them with our own identity intact and, and our own sense of success and our own abilities. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, we just hear the, the negative side of experience of, of this experience, which, which is certainly outlined in Sharon's book, but there's also a lot of positive things that Sharon has achieved and, and sometimes in reaction to what she's experienced. And um, you've accomplished a lot on your own, Sharon, and I think that it would be nice to just share with folks what you've done to take care of yourself and move through this. Okay. Um, I was raised to, as a as to marry right, marry somebody. I was raised to go to college and get my MRS degree, not to be not not to have a trade, but I was supposed to marry correctly and marry have a man take care of me. And when I did have to get divorced because of, of um, intolerable situations and two marriages, I got divorced twice. I didn't know what I was going to do for work, and I've always liked helping people. So my first job was with Big Brothers and Big Sisters as administrative assistant, and I started to work through the mental, uh, the, the charity work, my, and I was executive director of March of Dimes. I was listening to a March of Dimes uh, commercial before I came on, doing wonderful work. And I always tried to be out there, and I just kept moving. I just kept moving job to job, and then I took Tai Chi, and I took Hula. Hula is a beautiful dance, and it's also very spiritual. I've taken it for over 50 years. I love hula and music, and I read a lot. I read one time when I was going through a lot of trouble with the business. I took over my dad's construction company and the unions and the feds and the IRS are all coming after me. I would read books like uh, the, the Wives of Henry VIII. I thought, well, this isn't so bad. I'm not in the Tower of London. You know, I'm not going to have my head chopped off. You know, so I would always... Try to put things in perspective my whole life and try to get control. It was so important for me to have control because I saw my mother out of control. I never drank. I didn't take drugs, only those prescriptions that were prescribed to me by a doctor. And I just was, and my mindset wasn't going to be like my mother. I was going to handle this, whatever it was. So. That was my mindset. So I would, when I get physically tired, I do something mental. When I got mentally tired, I do something physical. Then I had four children, nine grandchildren, and I have a beautiful great grandson now that we just all dote over. And being surrounded by family and friends, and and taking ukulele lessons, and going to hula and tai chi classes, and and different classes, and being surrounded by people, I surround myself with positive people. I have to. I, I told my mother once, I said, when she was on a downer, I said, Mother, I can't take this anymore. You're too negative. i got to be around positive people. <laughs> she just looked at me and said, oh, okay, bye. But, so I just walked out, and that was that then. I thought, i just got to be around positive people. And so that's how I've lived my life. But I've been research. Yeah. Yeah. And research would certainly support that, that if you are surround yourself with positive people and you do positive things that you are healthier and you live longer. Yes, when I realize that your thoughts control your feelings and your thoughts are really who you are, I really got a handle on that. 
and I'm still working on it. I just think of life as a mind game, that we're just here to play this mind game and and figure it. Sometimes you can't figure it out, but then you flow with it. You know, if you can't figure it out, you just flow. My dad used to tell me that. He'd say, you have to bend like the bamboo, you know, just flow with the wind. If something's coming, you just kind of bend and flow with it. If you stand solid and rigid and you have to be right, you're going to break. But some, but there, you can't always be right, you know, and that's, that's what, that's what hurts me the most when I see it in my own children, that they're going to be right about something, and I just go, oh no. (laughs) You know, I, I don't know. It's just, I try to help them. I thought the best thing I could do for them was to teach them how to cope with life. I didn't, that's the only gift I could figure out to give them, how to cope. Because you never know what's going to come down the road. Right, and what a wonderful gift. What would you say to our, to our audience, to maybe somebody who's listening, who has had an experience similar to yours, what advice would you give them? My my biggest advice would be that um, in denying denying your parents or saying I don't want anything to do with them, I don't like them, I'm not going to. In denying them, you're probably denying the best parts of you. And to flow with it and to understand that there is a sickness. And to kind of separate it from the person they really are. Because they have good qualities that are probably in you. Because we, you know, there's, there's one line, I love Breakfast Club, that movie. And there's one line where she asks, you know, she, oh, Ali, she, she, she asks, are we going to grow up to be like our parents? You know, and, and the answer was, it's inevitable. I thought, oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> but when you connect with the positive parts of that parent and you connect with the heritage and you go beyond your parent, you get a handle on it. And that's, that's what I've had to learn to do. Was there anyone else in your mother's family that had mental illness? No, not that I can think of. Um, mm-hmm. She had some brothers that were a little eccentric, mm-hmm. but not to be hospitalized. You know, um, when I talk, people ask me what her childhood was like and how did she get to be like this or, you know, what was going on with her. And I know right after I was born, she couldn't get out of bed for almost a year and because and, my dad wrote her letters. He was a buyer for women's clothes from Make Company, which later became Macy's. So he would travel by train from L.A. to New York in those days, in the 1940s. And it was a long trip. And I, I had lots of his letters that he'd write her and, and dated, and I know that she didn't get out of bed till maybe a year after I was born. And my dad took her to um, a psychiatrist for the first time, and that's when she had her first shock treatment. And that's the first thing I can think of that she may have had postpartum blues. Mm-hmm. And in those days, they didn't really talk about it. Somebody right. else, you know, Jane Fonda wrote about this. Her mother uh, had postpartum blues after her birth, but her mother had later committed suicide. My mother's story is a little bit different than so many, I think, because she was more manic than de- than depressed. She'd always yeah. say, if I could ride through the depression, which I'm going to do, Sharon, I'm going to ride through the depression... Because I love being manic. I love the highs. Mm-hmm. And she loved her stories. 
and so did the community because I ran into people telling me the same story. Oh, you're my, oh yeah, and she came on, you know. Um, so I, I know she loved her stories and she loved being famous. What's the best memory you have of your mom? My best memories are, are uh, singing with her. When we were, when she, when we were little, um, when I was little, she, she played the ukulele. She was very talented. She could play the piano. She could just sit down and pick out any tune. And she'd get her ukulele and, and we would sing in harmony. And then she'd mm-hmm. find two songs that would go together and I would sing one and she'd sing another. And she was just so proud of me when I could sing with her. I was the only one in the family that could carry a tune. And I just remember how happy she was when we were singing together. And she was so happy watching me do hula. She was so proud of me doing hula or playing the, when I played practice. I did classical piano for many years. She didn't know the music, but she'd be in the kitchen and I'd be practicing my classical piano. And she'd say, Sharon, wrong note, you know, she'd tell me. <laughs> but um, she loved music. And the music was uh, a great language for both of us. And she loved philosophy. She read, she read physics. She read philosophy. She, she wasn't the type of mother that would have lunch with the girls or have somebody over for coffee. She'd go to the library and come back with lots of books, and they were all deep, what I call deep classical books. My dad did the same thing. He read the encyclopedia. We had an encyclopedia uh, Britannica in those days, and he would read from A to Z and from Z to A, and he'd just pick up a, this huge volume I read it like a like a novel. They both oh. thirsted for knowledge, and that great thirst for knowledge is something I've always admired in both of my mom and dad. So, was your father able to get some peace in his life? I know they divorced after yes, twenty years. Yes, he finally divorced her after twenty eight years, and he said, "Sharon, I can't do this anymore," because um, uh, we just visited her at a mental hospital in Los Angeles. And she'd been caught with a night nurse during the night, and the psychiatrist was so apologetic, and you know, it was supposed to be one of the best hospitals in the country. And I said, "Sharon, I can't do it anymore." And I said, well, "That's that's fine, Dad. David and I'll take over." And he just after that uh, was with my aunt and uncle, and he saw somebody he went to high school with, and he married her. They were. She'd been married to an alcoholic, and he'd been married to my mother, and they looked at each other, and they said, you know, we deserve each other. They divorced their spouses and got married. They lived for four years before my dad died of melanoma. But my dad told me he was dying a happy man because of Kathy, because of his last wife. He says, I'm dying a happy man, Sharon. So he had four years of one woman just doting on him instead of the other way around. Well, that's good. Yes. Good. I know, but he died too young. He's only 50. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, are, do you have another book that you're thinking about doing, or is this the only well, I started, one? I started a book, and I got the idea from uh, Jeanette Walls, who wrote The Glass Castle. She had a grandma she wanted mm-hmm. to write about, so she had some information. But she called her book a true life novel. And I'm doing that with my mother. I'm calling it Exposing the Naked Lady. So I'm trying to use my mother's voice and going back to her childhood and what it might have been like for her to go through these experiences. Mm-hmm. And, what, and that's really a challenge to put, to put myself in her mind. And 
I'm hoping I can do it. I have a, I have a, about one fourth of it done already, but I'm, I'm working on that. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you ready to laugh and learn as you get the info that will get you fit? Small steps can lead to big changes once you're headed in the right direction. Join the dynamic twin sister and exercise expert team of Alexandra Williams and Kimberly Williams-Evans on Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers. KNA bring you top-level guests who offer active aging advice and practical tips you can use today. Enjoy the second phase of life with vitality, brain power, and energy. Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers airs live Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking with Sharon Hicks about her memoir in which she describes growing up with her mom who um, suffered from bipolar disorder. And, um, you know, we were talking during the break, and and Sharon's mother certainly was very comfortable with with herself in many ways in her own sexuality. And, And I think that when you think about the times that she grew up in, um, you know, a lot of what she was doing was just trying to find an identity um, with a bipolar disorder. But, um, you know, I, you wonder if, if if it was today, you know, would she have gotten married at 16 and, and what would her life have been? Um, you just don't know because she was shaped by the times in which she was Oh, you're born. absolutely right. I mean... I, I think about that, what she could have. She always wanted to be an inspirational leader like Tony Robbins or, or Werner Earhart, or she wanted to inspire people and wake people up. She always said, we got to wake people up you know, to, to their inner strength and to who they, who they are. And she did have a lot of that insight and a lot of that power. 
she 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 was an amazing lady, very intellectual, but she was a product of her times, of being a woman. When you think, and only in 1920 did women actually vote. You know, it was law was passed in 1919, but it wasn't enacted till 1920. Hasn't even been a hundred years that women have had the right to vote. So when you think right. about her being born in 1918. Before, before that time, it just blows my mind what she had to go through, not only as a mental patient, but as a woman. Right. They were pretty oppressive times. Yes, yes. And she, <laughs> my dad was a very successful contractor in Hawaii. We built over 20,000 homes. There were so many homes going up that they used to say, I live in a Hicks home. And he has his own, he's a legend here in Hawaii for his own, for what he did for Hawaii. And um, I just lost track what I was going to say about that. But he, he, uh, mother became a legend in her right because she always wanted to do something different. And in Hawaii, the population was such that uh, we were a minority. My dad had a lot of local Japanese people working for him. And the Japanese woman would go into the kitchen to talk and the men would go in the living room and talk. And my mother just refused. She'd be in the living room with the men talking. You know, she wanted to know what was going on in the business. She wanted She wanted to be in the... She didn't want to talk about what women talked about. She never could take that role. There's one story that I, I, I like. Well, there's several stories in the book because she had so many. But one story was with an attorney. And I had to see this attorney for something I was doing with a construction company at that time. And he refused to take my phone calls. He wouldn't take my phone calls. And finally, I told the, the secretary, please tell uh, David Shutter I am not my mother. And he finally took my phone call. And I wanted so much, Mary, to walk into his office in a trench coat, you know, with nothing on underneath, and just go, surprise, I am my mother, but I couldn't do it. So I dressed very conservatively, and I go in there, and he says, Sharon, before we talk, i got to tell you a story, he says. I despise your mother. And I said, oh, my gosh. So I knew it was coming because my mother told me this story. He said, I'm in between divorces, you know, and I live in a beautiful home in Kahala on the ocean, you know, a $22 million home in those days. It was a beautiful home. And and I, I, he says, I sleep naked. I'm in between my, my sheets, you know, and I'm laying there. And all of a sudden I see your mother standing over me naked. And all she had was a big purse and a big hat. And he says, I knew she came to kill me. He said, because I had a lot of death threats on my life. He said, I'm a criminal attorney. The police arrest him. I let him go. The police arrest him. I get him out. So he said, I knew she came to kill me. <laughs> he said, I was scared to death. And all I had was the phone by my bed. And so he picks up his phone and he says, hello, I've got a naked lady in my bedroom. And he said, the dispatch person just started to laugh and laugh. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I didn't invite her. And... <laughs> guy's laughing and he says this guy didn't even invite her you know and they're laughing at him and he says look at this is david shutter i've got a naked woman in my bedroom and you better get over here and he said it took him 45 minutes to get to my house i despise your mother and i had to lay there while she's trying to get in bed with me and he said i just i just i he said i don't know how she did it i have guard dogs i have an alarm system and he was just so upset and i found out later that my mother had made friends with the dogs earlier. She took them raw meat, and she figured out how to do the alarm system. And she told me, she said, 
Sharon has a beautiful home. He's got this shag carpet and tiki gods by the fireplace. And he said, all I want to do is get in bed with him. I don't know why you're so upset, you know. <laughs> My mother, you know, she just was out there and open. And, uh, and I tell this story in Hawaii. People laugh because David Shutter is one of our famous criminal attorneys here, but he has since passed away. But it's, so how can people find your book, and how can they get in touch with you? The best thing is to go to Amazon.com, and you can type in How Do You Grab a Naked Lady or Sharon Hicks. Amazon, uh, then there's reviews there, and also I have a website, uh, SharonLHicks.com. You have to use the middle, na- middle initial, SharonLHicks.com. I have a website, and... Uh, they can find my email on that website, or they can just go straight to Amazon.com and find me, too. Has anyone who has been a parent that, I mean, has anybody like your mother read your book and come and talk to you? Or has it mainly been children who had parents? Oh, no. I, I am surprised of the population that are reading my books from the ages of 20 to 90-something. Uh, one lady... Uh, retired professor at UH in nutrition, very famous lady, read my book, and she found me, and she said, Sharon, you're the best author I have ever read, and i got to meet you, and she took me to lunch, and she was in tears, and she said, she was a nutritionist, she said, this is one of the best books I've ever read, so it's, I'm having people just read it, it's, it's, it's entertaining as well as um, maybe enlightening for people, I hope it's helpful, but I have people that women who have been abused uh, by their husbands. And one woman had read my book four times and she gave me this big hug and she was just crying in my ear and she said, Sharon, I can't tell you how much your book has helped me. And she had been in an abusive situation. It wasn't uh, diagnosed as mental illness. So I'm finding people, people general, the general population, even if they haven't had mental illness in their family, they relate to it which I am very proud that they are. So it's a relatable you book. Should, you should be proud. It's a wonderful book. And I, um, so for any of our listeners, it's, it's How to Grab a Naked Lady, and it's written by Sharon Hicks. You can get it on Amazon.com. Um, how, yeah, how do you and, grab a naked lady? Yes, I'm sorry. How do you grab a naked lady? Right. That's a good question. Yeah. I, I asked one of my coworkers, um, saw the cover, and he said, how do you grab a naked lady? And he looked at me and he said, you don't. I said, that's right. You didn't even read the book. <laughs> I, had a marriage no. proposal. I had a marriage proposal for my book yeah. because he thought it was a sex manual. And then I oh, knew my. It. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I thought, yeah. no, 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 it's a memoir. And he said, no, no, I want to marry you. And it was really kind of bizarre, but it's, it's been very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting tip for me. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, this this hour with us, Sharon, and you know your resilience and your ability to take something that might have um, crushed someone else and turn it into something positive is uh, wonderful. So, so thank you again for sharing this hour with us. Oh, thank you, Mary. I appreciate it. And aloha from Hawaii. <laughs> thank you, and have a great week, everyone. Thank you. 
We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.